Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Michael Scott for a conversation about ancient Delphi. Dr. Scott is a British classical scholar, ancient historian, and presenter. He is professor of classics and ancient history at the University of Warwick and member of Warwick's Global History and Culture Centre. He has written numerous publications over his career, including the monograph as an example, Delphi, a history of the center of the ancient world, which was published by Princeton University Press. And he joins us today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, Andrew. Thanks very much for having me. All right. So to start off the conversation, Michael, and I'm looking forward to it, um, to create sufficient background and context for the conversation, when looking at the ancient period, and, and perhaps for this um, question, let's focus in on roughly, if we go in and out a little bit, it's perfectly fine, but roughly first century BCE, what was Delphi in the first century BCE? Well, by the first century BCE, Delphi was a place with a very, very long history behind it. Right? We think that Delphi emerged as a religious sanctuary back in the 8th century BCE. So by the 1st century BCE, it had already been operating for some 700 years, something like that. Uh, and it's a religious sanctuary. So that means at its heart, there is a temple, and it was a temple dedicated to the god Apollo, the son of Zeus. And Apollo was the god of music, the god also of healing, but also crucially, the god of prophecy and foresight. It was the god you went to consult if you wanted to know about the future. And so Delphi, as the seat of the temple of the god Apollo, ended up having a really big role as a place people from all over the ancient Mediterranean world went to understand a little bit about what the gods had in store for them in the future. And that's over that entire 700-year period, from the 8th century BC through to the 1st century BCE. That continued as a constant. You know, empires came and went, cultures changed, rulers obviously changed, uh, but this need to find out about the future and consult the gods in order to do so, and to do so specifically at Delphi, remained constant. And so you can imagine if people have been coming to this one spot for over 700 years by the first century BCE, there will be a lot of stuff there. Right? There won't just be a temple. People will have built things. They will have dedicated stuff to the god. There will be a community based there around the religious sanctuary in the temple. And all of that is absolutely true. So we have to imagine Delphi in the first century BCE as a little mini city-state, a little polis in its own right, uh, probably of about a thousand citizens, actual local Delphians who lived around the sanctuary and who helped run the sanctuary. And then that number would be massively increased at the specific days each month that you were allowed to consult the god Apollo about the future with people coming from all over the place. So that gives you a little bit of a flavor of what Delphi might have been like in the first century BCE, a place with a lot of history, a lot of heritage, uh, a very uh, revered and well-respected place that had stood the test of time to which people were coming from all over the Mediterranean to find out about what the gods had in store for them for the future. 
there is nothing like fully mucking up the first question. How would your answer, although your answer might have been similar, but if I would have uh, said millennium, as I meant to say, first millennium BCE, would you have answered it a little bit differently? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, kind of, I guess across the first millennium BCE. You did great, though. Was, oh, yeah, it's kind of constant growth, right? So you yeah. know, it starts off as a small sanctuary in the 8th century BCE, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and more and more important right the way through to the first century BC. And what is phenomenal, I think, about Delphi is that it actually goes way beyond that into the first millennium CE, into the first millennium AD. It continues to have a role and to be consulted by Roman emperors all the way through to Rome's conversion to Christianity in the fourth century CE. And then it even manages to have a role in ancient society post that. You know, we, the last kind of... Um, echo we hear from Delphi is probably in something like the um, 6th uh, or 7th centuries CE when it finally falls completely silent and we think it was abandoned entirely. So, you know, imagine that, a place that actually has, is a continuum, a continual locus of attention and focus from the 8th century BCE right the way through until the 6th, 7th centuries CE. So when you're referencing the 8th century BCE, what are, what are scholars leaning on for that, for that evidence? Is that, is that archaeological evidence? Is there, is there writings? Can you speak more about that? Yeah, so the 8th century BCE uh, is a really important period kind of in Greek history more generally, and that's evidence from lots of different perspectives. So uh, the Greeks themselves saw the 8th century as an important time because they dated their first ever Olympic Games to the 8th century BCE, in particular to 776. And they kind of, all dating was done on the basis of how it related to when the Olympic Games were held. And so you, you, they sort of dated backwards and forwards from 776. So clearly it was an important moment in their own conception of their past. But equally, archaeological investigation has shown us that the 8th century is when sanctuaries, religious sanctuaries across the whole of Greece, start to become monumentalized, i.e. people are building stuff there, temples, altars, other buildings, and the number of dedications left in sanctuaries to the gods uh, increases exponentially. Uh, and we think there are a number of reasons for this. We think the 8th century is when uh, Greece, the, the kind of the, the, the community of, that is ancient Greece, really picks itself up off the floor after the so-called sort of dark ages that have come before it. Um, its population expands, wealth and trade expands. Um, as a result, people have more things to dedicate to the gods. They're investing more in their communities. And it's really the 8th century BCE when ancient Greece, as we know and think about it today, comes online and starts to develop and take giant strides forward that will lead over the following centuries to you know not only the great works of literature that we've come to know and love but the great buildings that we still so admire and the great philosophical and political institutions that we still admire today you mentioned uh, apollo earlier um can you can you share um the uh main tradition or if there's more than one main main tradition um uh around the, the origins of, uh, of Delphi? 
Yeah, so this is, again, it's something that the ancient Greeks themselves were constantly asking them, asking themselves and coming up with answers to, right? Why is Delphi where it is and how did it get started? Um, and in part, I think that's because when you actually go to Delphi, although it's a very dramatic location, you know, you're 650 meters or so up above sea level, uh, hidden sort of nestled in a crevice of the Parnassian Mountains. And the Parnassian Mountain is the sort of one one of modern day Greece's ski resorts, right? So it gives you a, a sense of kind of what, how high up in the air you are. And in wintertime, if there's a, an aggressive snowfall, you know, Delphi is still to this day covered in snow. So you're, you're nestled up, you know, high above sea level in the crevice of the Parnassian Mountains on a steep, steep, unstable rock face. Um, really not associated with or close to any other major settlement that we know from the period. And so the place that Delphi is really does look a little bit out on a limb. It, you know, and I think people both in the modern world and in the ancient world sort of wanted to justify to themselves why Delphi had to be where it was. And that first answer to that question comes in the sort of 7th century BC, which is the time that we get the kind of earliest surviving literary writings coming out of ancient Greece. And it's in one called the Homeric Hymn to Apollo. Um, and this is a hymn constructed sort of basically in honor of the god Apollo. But one of the things it does, it tells us a story of how uh, Apollo decided one day to found uh, a consultation site um, in which there would be an oracle that people came to consult and the oracle would commune with the god Apollo and uh, get the, the answers to give back to the people. And he sort of does a bit of a bit of a bit of a tour around the Mediterranean basin, according to the American to Apollo, to look at different potential sites and see which one he liked. Um, and he ends up turning up at Delphi and goes, yeah, I, re I really like this place. Uh, but there's absolutely nobody there. So he sort of spies, according to the American to Apollo, a Cretan ship that happens to be sailing past at the time. And he powerfully, divinely, magically makes this Cretan ship go off course and brings the Cretan sailors up to this, you know, place in the middle of nowhere, halfway up a mountainside and says, guess what, lads, you're going to be my first priests of my temple here at Delphi. And according to the American to Apollo, their first response is, but no one will ever come here. It's in the middle of nowhere. And he goes, no, you know, don't have any fear. I'm going to make this spot one of the most important places in the world. So that's the first story that's told about why Delphi is where it is. And then you get a series of evolving stories after that that go through the different literary, surviving literary sources through to the first century BCE and the first century CE um, that evolve that story. And they evolve in two different ways. One is they say, actually, the site of Delphi was a site of oracular consultation long before the god Apollo existed. In fact, actually, this was a site that was sacred to the very original mother goddess, Gaia, Mother Earth, which is sort of two divine generations before Apollo, Zeus, and all the other Olympian gods that we normally talk about. Uh, and that actually this site was handed down from Gaia to her daughter Themis, and then from Themis to Apollo. So we get the sense that actually Delphi has been a sacred site kind of since the beginning of time, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of everything. That's the kind of first way in which it develops. And then the second way in which it develops, and this was something which the, the Roman era writers, so particularly from the first century BCE onwards, really liked 
and took up was uh, a different set of stories that um, Delphi was where it was because farmers used to drive their, their flocks up into the mountains at different points of the year and they would come to the spot where Delphi was and there would be this chasm in the ground that when their goats went near it, the goats would start behaving all weird and would sort of fall in. Uh, and so to sort of stop their goats falling in, they kind of put a, uh, a three-legged stool over the chasm and put some poor woman, you know, the daughter of one of the farmers on top of this tripod. And she went weird all the time, but ended up being the first oracular priestess of the god Apollo. And so you get all these stories that focus around the idea that there's actually a, a hole in the ground out through which vapors come supposedly from the divine that inspire this poor woman who sits above them to uh, forecast the future. Um, and that develops, that kind of storyline develops into its fullest extent in the writings of, of people like Plutarch in the first century BCE. Um, and then in the first century CE, you get perhaps the final and in some ways most famous story which is in the ancient writer Strabo, who was an ancient geographer who wrote a kind of history of the entire known world at the time. And he tells the story that Delphi is where it is because Zeus one day let loose two eagles from opposite ends of the world and where they met, i.e. the very centre of the world, that was Delphi. Um, and so that's where the title of the book that you kind of referenced in the intro, Delphi, Center of the World, uh, the Ancient World, came from, in that uh, Delphi, from the kind of first century CE, really likes to play on this idea that it's not only a place that's been there since the beginning of time, but it, it, that it is also a place that sits at the very epicenter, the very uh, navel, the very omphalos is the Greek word that's used, which translates as navel or belly button, the very uh, omphalos of the entire world. Is it known who wrote the Homeric hymn to Apollo? No, we don't have individual authors' names for the Homeric hymns, and they're, they're simply known as the Homeric hymns because they uh, seem to be developed around about the same time that Homer's Iliad and Odyssey are coming into their sort of final fixed forms so around this 8th, 7th century BCE period. And there's lots of different Homeric hymns surviving to a number of different Olympian deities um, that tell us you know, really important things about how they were conceived, a lot of their original mythical origin stories, the sorts of things that these gods and goddesses got up to, and, and in also kind of how they were worshipped at different places around Greece. I think you mentioned that scholars uh, estimate that the Homeric hymn to Apollo was created in the uh, 8th century. If that's off in any way, let, let me know um, in, in your response. Um, is Do scholars believe that the, the oracle, the Pythia, began after the hymn was created? Or is it believed that the hymn was um, in some way account... Um, recounting something that already existed at the time the the uh so in other words the um the oracle would have come earlier than when the hymn was created i think it has to be very much that latter case that delphi was already operating as a religious sanctuary and as a site of oracular consultation by the time the homeric hymn to apollo came into being um 
Uh, and as a result, the American seeks to explain why Delphi has become uh, this sort of cent central place of Iraqi consultation that is quickly developing uh, a reputation for being what the not just an oracular site across you know within ancient Greece, but but almost the most important oracular site. I mean, you have to put it in a bit of context. I think here that. Uh, ancient Greek gods, crucially, could be both really, really mean and nasty, as well as really, really nice. You know, we're very, very different from our kind of modern conceptions in, in most modern religions of, of a benevolent sort of deity. And as a result of them potentially being both nasty and nice, it makes perfect sense that, you know, if you've got a plan or in mind of what you'd like to achieve, it is absolutely essential as pretty much the first thing you would do that you would want to find out whether or not the gods were well disposed towards that plan because if they weren't you know there was no hope of it ever coming to fruition and so consulting the gods and trying to find out what the gods had in store or what they felt about a particular plan of yours was an absolutely day-to-day knee-jerk reaction and need of everyone across the ancient Greek community. And there were lots of different ways in which you could find out about the will of the gods. Um, you could do it through going to a site of oracular consultation like Delphi, but you know you could also do it through rolling dice. You could do it through uh, interpreting the flight of birds. You could do it through killing an animal and reading the liver, the entrails of its liver um, for specific signs. There were a myriad of different ways you could do it, and there were thousands of different locations that you could do it across the ancient Greek world. Um, so really, consulting the gods was something that every ancient Greek would have been entirely used to and would have been uh, would have thought of as an absolutely natural part of their day-to-day -day life. Within that world of kind of you know, hundreds and perhaps even thousands of potential places you could go to consult the gods, what emerges over the 8th, 7th and 6th centuries BCE is a kind of hierarchy of uh, places at which Delphi very, very quickly establishes itself right at the top as the kind of premier site of oracular consultation that you made the effort to go to when you had a really important big question as an individual, or if you were a city and a community, when you had a really big question about the fate of your, your city or community, you would send a representative to Delphi, or in uh, early period equally, we see kings turning up at Delphi uh, and asking their questions. So kind of it's, it's Delphi emerging over those first couple of centuries as the premier place to go within the context of um, lots of lots of different choices uh, of places to consult the gods and this kind of sense that it was absolutely natural um, to do so. And to create perspective, in this period of time, how many uh, sites were there um, approximately, or perhaps it's known by scholars, where um, there, there was a bona fide oracular type service that was present in, in Greece? I don't think we have a we have a total number um, uh, because you know so many of them are kind of are still yet to be excavated around the wider kind of Mediterranean world, but it but it really is it, you know if we work on the basis that uh, we think there are about a thousand Greek city states, uh, i.e. polis, kind of a, across the ancient Greek world, we think there are about a thousand of them. 
um, at each of these polis. And then, of course, on top of those thousand polis, you'd have all the other uh, ethne tribal based communities like Macedon, etc., kind of particularly up in the north, uh, western, uh, northern parts of Greece. Um, for each of those polis and for all those tribal communities, you know, each probably would have had access within its territory to uh, a good couple of bona fide oracular sanctuaries, as well as, of course, people just, you know, finding wandering soothsayers and others who claim to know how to interpret the site, the flight of birds or an entrails of a liver or uh, or anyone who would just, you know, offer you a, a set of dice to be able to do it. So we're talking in terms of actual locations you could go to, I think in the low thousands. Um, but on top of that, so many opportunities to do it without having to go to a particular place as well. You know, everything from literally throwing dice, uh, wandering soothsayers and or or oracular oracle peddlers, as they're known in the comedies of Aristophanes, um, that would sort of be walking through the city streets offering their services. Uh, so really, everywhere you turned, there would be an, a chance and an opportunity to consult the gods. And one of the um, best ancient texts that I really love that I recommend to all your listeners is uh, a writer called Theophrastus, who was in the 4th century BCE, and he was a philosopher, and he would become one of the sort of followers after Aristotle and uh, kind of actually be responsible for one of the philosophical schools in Athens that Aristotle set up. He wrote a text called The Characters, and it's a brilliant set of short caricatures of different kinds of people that are still so recognizable to us today. Um, the garrulous person, uh, the kind of egotistical person, the penny-pinching person, etc. And one of them is called the superstitious man, the man who is too superstitious. And uh, one of the things that this character does is that he won't make a single decision in his own life without having first consulted on whether the gods think it's a good idea or not. Uh, and so he kind of, he won't take a step forward out of his house each morning without having sort of thrown the dice to see whether it's a good idea. He won't kind of move forward in any way, shape or form. So kind of, they were, there were caricatures in the ancient Greek world of people who, who overdid it in terms of consulting the gods, but uh, kind of actually doing it on a regular basis was, was thought to be entirely natural. So if someone showed up in, let's say, the 7th century, the 8th century, some, sometime around that point in time, BCE, you mentioned uh, it was located in the Parnassian Mountains, but what, what would they see? Can you describe it a little bit, what they probably would have seen if they showed up in Delphi around that period of time? I mean, in the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, uh, Delphi is still in its infancy. So people coming there, uh, they would have made their way up from sea level, 650 meters or so above sea level, to what was a, 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 you know, a small but, but articulated sanctuary, i.e. when I say articulated, what I mean is it had sort of uh, walls or at least borders around the religious space that was dedicated to and, and sort of owned by the god. Um, and at the heart of that would have been some kind of temple structure which uh, if they had turned up on the specific days of the month that were available for consultation uh, which were not many right uh, kind of actually it's only one day a month for nine months of the year uh, there would have been a queue of people uh, because people all turned up for that one day queuing and waiting their turn to sort of go inside the temple structure where they would get their chance to ask their question to this priestess that as you 
you, you name-checked her before, the Pythian priestess, um, and she would then uh, in some way communicate with the god and in some way come back with a response to that uh, person's question, which they would then take away with them. And while they were there, uh, staying in Delphi, having consulted with... Um, the oracle they may have looked at some of the small early buildings that were around the temple within the sanctuary that had been dedicated to the god they may have seen some of the objects that had been dedicated by previous consultants who had come bringing things in honor of the gods and frankly sort of dedicating them to the gods in order to bribe the gods to give them a good response the other thing that ancient greek gods were um, very much is bribable they liked being kind of given treats um, whether that was in terms of a nice sculpture or a nice kind of set of uh, uh, armor that was dedicated in the sanctuary or even down to just simple pieces of jewelry and hairpins and brooches of which we found thousands kind of in ancient greek sanctuaries from this period um, greek gods liked to be uh, greased <laughs> and uh, they liked to uh, be uh, persuaded um, and, and, and honoured. So there would be lots of this kind of stuff in the sanctuary because once it had been dedicated to the god, it had become the property of the god and it could never henceforth be removed. Um, so it had to, to remain there for all time. Of course, that's what makes religious sanctuaries such fantastic places to excavate because once stuff was put there, it couldn't be taken away. What's uh, what's interesting, um, there's a lot interesting here, um, but to create some juxtaposition with an episode that the show did um, a little while back with Dr. Judith Berenger from the University of Edinburgh is that we did it on uh, ancient Olympia and it, 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 it wasn't a polis, which I thought in interesting. And there's some major differences too around the, the, uh, the Oracle as well. Um, in comparing the two the two sites, but um, when it comes to Delphi and around this uh, you know seventh eighth uh, century, maybe even a little bit later, was it was it a was it a polis? Well, let's say you know seventh eighth century. Was it a polis by by that by that point in time, or did that come later? No, I, I would imagine that that it would be it would have been a community. I mean that the, the, the pot, pot, Polis only really sort of start to come into existence and define themselves as such again from this 8th century period onwards. This is kind of the rise of the polis, um, as we call it. And um, so these would have been community, this would have been a community living around the sanctuary uh, from that get go period. And in fact, what the archaeology shows us is that in very uh, kind of early Delphi, so before the 8th century, before there is an established religious sanctuary, there is habitation across the area that will become the sanctuary. Um, from the, now I think it's shown to have been from the sort of 10th century BC onwards. So 10th, 9th, into the 8th century, people are living in this location. And then what seems to happen in the 8th century, what the archaeology shows us is that the habitation is cleared away from this central space, which henceforth from the 8th century becomes the defined uh, uh, temenos, the ancient Greek word is the defined territory of the god, uh, the god Apollo, and becomes a, rel a recognizable religious sanctuary at the heart of a community that continues to live around it. Um, and that, as you say, is a very different model from uh, Olympia, which really is just out in the middle of nowhere and doesn't have a permanent religious, uh, a permanent community living around it. 
by what uh, century or year would scholars um, confidently say that Delphi was a was a polis? I don't think we're able to put uh, a year a year on it. I mean, I think kind of uh, we know there is a community living there. Whatever they thought of themselves is a different matter. Whatever they called themselves, kind of we don't have surviving texts from that period. So it's not until sort of in later centuries that we have surviving um, actual inscriptions, so texts written up on stone from the community of Delphi, from the polis of Delphi, where we can see it talking about itself as a polis. Um, and they don't really survive uh, until we get down into the 6th, 5th, and then into the 4th centuries BCE. So it kind of, kind of, obviously, the uh, absence of evidence earlier is not evidence of absence. Um, we don't know that the Delphians weren't talking about themselves as a polis before that time. We just don't have any surviving evidence to demonstrate that they definitively were. Okay, so the, the oracle, the, the Pythia, has come up uh, several times naturally in your, your responses. You want to take a little bit of time now and speak about um, how that that process, how that service worked, how what's known about how oracles were were chosen, etc. Yeah, it's for a site that is so well known and so well talked about in the ancient sources, and which you know we've set up as being one of the most important places in the ancient Greek world. The irony is that we do not know and no surviving ancient source tells us in full about how the consultation process actually took place. Uh, that is the mystery at the heart of Delphi. We get different snippets of the consultation process from different ancient authors. And so one approach has been to try and put those snippets together to form a complete picture. But I think that's a slightly dangerous approach because then you're using authors from writing in the 7th century BCE right the way through to the 4th century CE and trying to cobble them together into one picture, assuming that that picture didn't change over time. Uh, and actually, I think we have to imagine that the process of consultation probably did vary over time. But if we try and give some kind of general sense, we know that the uh, oracular priestess was only available for consultation on one day a month for nine months of the year because that was explained by the ancient sources that Apollo was in residence at Delphi for nine months of the year but for the three winter months of the year went off to live in another part of uh, the ancient world. So on those nine days a year people would travel to Delphi and turn up uh, hoping to be able to consult um, with the oracular priestess and thus with the god. By the 5th century, say, BCE, so a couple of centuries into Delphi's operation, that queuing process had become really quite formalised. So people would turn up and then there would be an order to the queue. Local Delphians, the people who lived at Delphi, always were at the front of the queue. Then it would be 
people who um, had a special relationship with the city of Delphi, kind of twinned cities, if you like, that kind of thing. They got next in the queue. Then it would be members of the uh, a governing council that sort of uh, is like a prototype ancient version of the UN, effectively, with representatives from different Greek city-states, mainland Greek city-states. Um, if someone had come from one of those rep- Greek city-states that sat on this council, they were next in line. Then the rest of the Greeks. So if you were Greek, you then came up. And then the rest of the ancient Mediterranean world after them. So there was quite a formalized queuing system uh, and you queued and that queue sort of wound its way up through the sanctuary to the temple of Apollo. You had to pay a tax, you have to pay a fee to consult the oracle. That's basically where, for in economic terms, Delphi's livelihood came from and what sustained this polis community living up in the mountains was the fees that were paid to consult the oracle. Um, And then you got to go inside the temple. And once you go inside the temple, this is where things start to get really sketchy. We really don't know. We know there was a Pythian priestess, a woman who was a local Delphian. She was originally uh, chosen from amongst the young women of Delphi, so the under 18s. But then at a certain stage, because one or two Pythian priestesses had turned out to be a bit bribable and thus corruptible, the Delphians actually started choosing women who were kind of over 50 and thought to be less corruptible from their local Delphian community to be the priestess. The priestess was uh, in the inside the temple and had gone through a series of spiritual rituals that day to prepare herself for the consultation. What we don't know for sure is whether the consultant got to stand in front of the Pythian priestess and ask their question and then hear directly the response or whether the consultant was in some way sort of separated off in a separate room where they could still speak their question and hear the response but not actually see the Pythian priestess or whether they had to give their question or ask their question to a, another party who then went and asked it of the priestess. We just don't know. The sources don't tell us very clearly. But what they came away with, uh, as recorded in the literary sources, uh, was a response that came from the Pythian priestess and thus supposedly from the god, which uh, was famously very uh, convoluted and required quite a lot of sort of thought to be able to unravel. So some famous examples are uh, when uh, King Croesus of Lydia turned up um, and asked whether he should uh, attack his uh, rival empire. Uh, The response came back, if you attack, a great empire will fall. And he, Croesus, immediately understood that to be his rivals. um, But actually, uh, in reality, it turned out to be his own. Or when the Athenians consulted just before the great Persian invasion of the early 5th century BCE, they got a response about what they should do about the kind of uh, arriving Persian invasion. Trust in your wooden walls. Um, And they had to take that back to their city and, and sort of try and work out what that meant. Now, lots of people have tried to think about kind of how this system would have worked and, you know, particularly how for but for nigh on a thousand years, people were coming to Delphi asking the questions. And people wouldn't do that if the answers weren't pretty good or pretty useful or thought to be pretty um, spot on. Um, and so people have tried to work out and think through kind of how this oracular process could have generated responses that were useful enough or uh, correct enough to, to never really have been challenged 
um, over that thousand year period? And for me, I think the answer is a little bit in, in the kind of how the process was set up. We've spoken about the way in which Greeks fundamentally believed in the existence of gods, in the existence of gods who could be both for you and against you, how consulting the gods about the future was an absolutely natural choice and thing to do. So people were predisposed towards accepting that this worked. But then secondly, the way you were supposed to ask your question at Delphi was very specific. You had to say, uh, is it better for me to do X or Y? So you had to offer a choice. You had to say, should I do A, X or Y, A or B? And then an answer would come back, do A or do B. Uh, you go away, you do A. It could turn out to be bad, but you could never prove that the oracle had given you the wrong response because you would never know what would have happened if you had gone down route B. So in demanding the question in that format, the oracle insulated itself from ever being able to be proved categorically wrong. And then on top of that, you had the fact that it never really came back going, do option A. As we've seen, it came back with a rather convoluted and difficult to understand response, like trust in your wooden walls. Um, and people then had to go away and think about what that meant and make a decision about what that meant. So again, if things went really badly wrong and people did decide to come back to Delphi, as well, on occasion people did and said, Oi, you know, I think, I think you gave me bad advice, then simply it was the interpretation process uh, by the consultants that had been wrong. Uh, not the oracle itself. So just as uh, kind of with that Croesus example, where he said, you know, the oracular response was, if you go to war, a great empire will fall. We know that Croesus came to Delphi afterwards, still in the chains that he had been put in by his having lost his empire and having been sort of thrown into prison by his rival going, you told me I would, I would win. And, and they said, no, we didn't say that. We said a great empire will fall, and it was your mistake to interpret that as your enemy's empire rather than your own. So in those two ways, Delphi sort of insulated itself from ever actually being proved categorically to be wrong and seems to have been able to offer useful enough responses um, for a thousand-year period to ensure that people kept coming back for more. The terms then uh, priestess, oracle, pythia, are they all synonyms in this context or are there nuanced differences? No, I mean, kind of very much the same. So she was known as the Pythian priestess uh, or simply as the oracle of Delphi. Um, they all refer to this same figure, this poor woman who uh, kind of had to go through the process of, of being the sort of conduit, if you like, for the gods' knowledge and wisdom uh, delivering responses to the consultants. Now, again, over time, we think that there were other religious personnel there around her. Um, we hear in some of the sources of priests of Apollo at Delphi who may have tended and, and, and uh, sort of looked after the priestess, the Pythian priestess. We hear about uh, women who tended the sacred hearth, the flame inside the temple, um, who, which may have been sort of like an entry-level religious position from which uh, one of them then got selected over time to, to be the Pythian priestess. So there were definitely other religious personnel around. Um, but the central figure was always Adelphi, this Pythian priestess. A whole episode could obviously be covered, uh, could be dedicated uh, to the oracle at, at Delphi. 
Um, and this has been very useful information. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to go to a, a few other items, uh, Michael. Uh, sporting games. What's what's known about um, any ancient sporting games that occurred in Delphi? Yeah, I think this is absolutely crucial and really, really important to get across and understand that Delphi, while famous for the Oracle, and rightly we spent some time discussing that, that was not the only thing that happened at Delphi or indeed attracted people to come to Delphi. Um, and I think part of the, the answer for how Delphi managed to maintain this unparalleled position of importance in an ancient world from you know the 8th century BCE through to the 6th, 7th century CE uh, kind of can only be really understood if you take that full picture of all the different kinds of activities that were going on at the site into account. Um, and so you mentioned sporting games. Well, Delphi, just like Olympia, every four years hosted great athletic and musical competitions that were considered in the ancient world on par with the ancient Olympics. So there were four sanctuaries around the ancient Greek world that if you, the, the, the UK analogy would be like the, the Premier League of ancient athletic games. Yeah, I don't know what that would be in the States or in Canada, but sort of the top, the top sporting league of competitions. There were four of them. There was Olympia, there was Delphi, there was Ismia and Nemea. Um, and they all hosted athletic games that uh, kind of really were considered the best of the best. So every four years, just like at Olympia, you would have large crowds of people, 40,000 plus Greeks, um, traveling to Delphi and camping out around the site uh, to watch the athletic and musical competitions that happened both around the site up in the hillside and down below in the valley below because you couldn't get much chariot racing in um, kind of cramped up on the side of the mountain. And then alongside the games, we know that people increasingly came to Delphi to to sort of basically to, to, to act as tourists. Because if you can imagine over those centuries that Delphi was there and all those people coming to it and all those people trying to bribe and persuade the gods to be on their side by dedicating nice statue groups, nice buildings, nice this, nice that within the sanctuary, all of which could never be got rid of and had to maintain, be on permanent show. Delphi, the sanctuary of Delphi and of Apollo of Delphi over time became an incredibly packed um, smorgasbord of beautiful gold, silver, bronze, marble, ivory, um, that would have astounded, you know, and, and surpassed in many ways, the collections that could be seen in any other Greek city, state, or indeed modern museum. And so we know that people increasingly travel to Delphi just to see this stuff um, and look around and, and act as, as tourists and marvel at it. And people, Greek city-states and others, were keen to have their building or their sculpture in amongst this group because people were coming to see it. And thus, if you had something you wanted to shout about and say to the world about who you were as a Greek city-state or indeed as an important individual, there was no better place to do it than through a monument within the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi because you knew that people would be coming to see it on a regular basis. So people came as tourists, but people equally came to dedicate stuff there because they wanted to have a piece of the action in this kind of monumental storyboard, if you like, of Greek history um, and achievement that was laid out within the sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi. Um, and then finally, the other sort of thing that starts bringing people there, particularly from the first century BCE onwards, is really as a place of philosophical and thoughtful discussion. So um, people meet 
uh, as this idea gathers pace that Delphi is the center of the world, right? That story of Strabo that's coming around, coming to the fore in the first century BCE, CE. Uh, people come to the omphalos, the belly button, the center of the world for philosophical discussion and debate and development of ideas. And so we see that really taking off as another kind of reason um, that people are coming to and are interested in Delphi. Uh, and so kind of it's the combination of all of these factors, the, Iraq, or the chance to consult the Pythian priestess and the god Apollo at the premier oracular consultation site of the ancient Greek world the chance for athletic and musical glory in the great Delphian games every four years, the chance to show off through a monument dedicated within the sanctuary or the chance to see these beautiful monuments in the flesh, uh, the chance to uh, be part of these gathering philosophical uh, discussions about the nature of life, etc. Um, all of this brought different crowds of people to Delphi on a continuing basis for over a thousand years and ensured it remained um, an absolutely central location um, within the Mediterranean world. Sounded uh, very, very lively and a cultural hub during those times. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it absolutely was a kind of cultural, religious, uh, sporting, philosophical hub. And put it in the context of a world that doesn't have Zoom or Twitter or Facebook or you know, the internet. And thus, how do you find out stuff? How do you find out what's going on in the ancient Greek world? You go to these key hubs, these key nexuses where the other people are coming and telling their stories and bringing information. So I think we also have to think about Delphi, not just as this religious hub, uh, sporting hub, uh, kind of philosophical hub, but as purely as an information hub. Uh, you know, this was a place where, where st people gathered to exchange information and stories. And as a result, it was probably one of the best informed places in the ancient world. Um, and I think it kind of it, its continuing importance is summed up by the fact that, you know, remember, this is a, at the end a tiny community of a, maybe a thousand local citizens of Delphi tending this great sanctuary. Yet this sanctuary and this city could write to a Roman emperor and say, would you like to be an honorary member of our town council? And a Roman emperor would write back going, yes, please, I would love to. Right? Kind of that's the sort of level of importance and weight that Delphi managed to have uh, right the way through the ancient world. Even Roman emperors paid attention and kind of willingly, gladly took up uh, the offer of being involved and, and kind of implicated in the, the space and place of Delphi. Some uh, wrap-up items, qu questions, Michael. When, when is it believed that the, or known, when the oracular consultation um, services uh, completed and, 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 and what, what, why, and then also the sporting games, when those ended and, and why? So the, again, the literary sources tell us that the last recorded oracular consultation was in the um, uh, mid-4th century CE, thanks to the very last pagan emperor, Julian, who asked a question of the oracle, and supposedly the oracle came back saying, um, you know, the fires of, of oracular consultation here at Delphi are quenched. Um, we are, are going to be silent from forevermore. Um, and so supposedly that's 
that's uh, kind of the last oracular consultation. Um, and the story fits neatly with the fact that Julian was the last pagan emperor. And then from then on through to the late fourth century CE, we see a series of Christian emperors. And in the late fourth century CE, um, the official, the whole Roman Empire will officially be turned Christian, will officially adopt Christianity as its official religion. At that point, obviously all pagan, as they were now known, uh, ancient Greek sanctuaries faced a problem. Um, either they had to shut down activities or they had to adapt. And Delphi seems to have quite cleverly adapted um, because we see the development of early Christian churches at the sanctuary in the archaeology. So it seems to have sort of, uh, uh, kind of embraced the new religion um, and, can, and offered up uh, the opportunity to worship there, even if that wasn't in the form of oracular consultation. And just like Olympia, we know that the athletic games continue to, to, to be held, perhaps in less exalted form, for probably you know, well into the... the um, uh, fifth, mid, mid to late 5th centuries CE before even they were sort of shut down because they fell foul of the new kind of Christian ethos of the um, later Roman, Eastern Roman, now Byzantine Empire. Uh, and then Delphi continued after that, we know, as a place of, of habitation, as a community, um, sort of you know, trying to, to make ends meet uh, in this period. And the, the thing that really perpetuated, the thing that eradicated it from the map, was that in the sixth and seventh centuries CE, we know that there are uh, invasions from the north of barbarian tribes as the Eastern Roman Empire, so the Byzantine Empire, sort of recedes and disintegrates. Um, those invading tribes seem to have swept down through Greece. And our last uh, archaeological image of ancient Delphi is of. Uh, different structures from within the sanctuary of Apollo being roughly pulled down to build a defensive wall um, against which the inhabitants seem to have made their last stand before the community was eradicated. And what's quite fascinating, I think, is that Delphi then, from the 7th century CE, literally disappeared. Uh, rock falls and landfalls and mudslides, which are very common in the area, seem to have covered over the ancient site entirely. And uh, then by the 18th and 19th centuries CE, uh, a modern community, a modern Greek community, was built and living over the top of ancient Delphi, and they had no idea that ancient Delphi was actually underneath them. Uh, and it wasn't until the 19th century, uh, when archaeology really got going as a discipline, that people rediscovered the fact that Delphi was there underneath this, this modern community. And in 1896, uh, the French won the contract to start excavating ancient Delphi, uh, and they literally dismantled the modern community uh, and destroyed all the housing and moved them and built them a new, house, new home round the corner on the next sort of crest of the mountain. And that's the modern town of Delphi that if you visit, you go to see today. And they literally excavated out ancient Delphi from the hillside. If someone visits visits it today, you've spent a lot of time in in Delphi over the years. What's one thing, kind of in closing? What's what's one thing that you'd really encourage people to do that may not be like obviously people you know you'll they'll walk around the archaeological site and they'll they'll kind of go with the flow and stuff and they'll they'll read. But is there is there something that comes to mind that you'd really encourage people to make sure they do uh, the first time they visit Delphi? 
Yeah, there'll be two things. One is, uh, if you can, get into the sanctuary when you're not on a tour guide that, that is taking you at pace through the sanctuary. But go there when you've got a bit of time. Go to the level of the temple, and there are a couple of benches you know, around that, that level, modern benches that you can sit on. Just sit there and give yourself 15, 20 minutes sitting in the sanctuary calmly, quietly, uh, because I think Delphi affects people, whether they know a little bit or nothing or everything about the ancient world, whether they have any kind of modern religious belief or none whatsoever. There are There is no place, I think, on earth that I have visited that affects people across that entire spectrum as much as Delphi does. There is something about Delphi, the landscape, the situation, the environment, the space that um, has a quality to it, uh, which is uh, unlike anywhere else I've been. And you feel that if you just give yourself a bit of time sat within the sanctuary, just quietly, just soaking it all in. So that would be my number one uh, tip uh, uh, to, to really feel the spirit of Delphi. The other would be uh, if you can stay overnight uh, there rather than just doing it on a day visit, get up for sunrise. Uh, and be there in front of the sanctuary uh, as the sun spills up around and comes around the crest of the mountain because you won't you won't see uh, a better sunrise um, anywhere in the Mediterranean for my money. That sounds like an incredible experience, Michael, to behold. And I mentioned the term bona fide earlier in the episode. You're a bona fide expert on this subject. Thank you for coming on the show today and sharing more more about ancient delphi it's my pleasure Andrew. thank you indeed for having me so again everybody the book that i mentioned at the start of the episode that dr scott wrote he's author of delphi a history of the center of the ancient world i'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode michael and everybody listening as always wishing a marvelous journey bye for now Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.